Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with the weights and care gaps for anyone trying to get drug treatment recovery services in our province, mental health services. Of course, this all follows another deadly year of drug overdose deaths in British Columbia last year. We've got Christina Gower standing by. First, have a listen to BC's chief coroner here, Lisa LaPointe. BC has experienced an average of six deaths every day of every week for two years due to toxic drugs. And these deaths were preventable. All parts of our province are experiencing the impacts of the toxic drug crisis. Okay, what if you or a loved one, a member of your family, has an addiction and needs help? How can you access the system? What kind of weights are people experiencing here? What kind of gaps in care do we have in British Columbia? That is becoming a big issue in our province right now. Let's discuss it with my guest, Christina Gower. Christina is a registered psychiatric nurse in the Lower Mainland on the front lines of this crisis. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Christina, thank you for coming on today. Hey, great to be here again, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. So when you have people come to you and they say, look, I'm, I have an addiction, I need help. What are you experiencing in the system in terms of the kind of the weights or the, the, the access to care right now? Is it difficult to get help? Uh, I'll be honest. Um, when I do hear that and I hear it a lot, uh, my heart drops right away because uh, it's tough. Um, uh, get it, our, our, our services are siloed uh, quite a bit and, and starting with the fact we have multiple health authorities, so it depends where people live. I don't necessarily know what the services are in certain places and I can't uh, quite figure that out. So, um, you know, starting out in acute care where I work in the emergency unit, uh, people will come to us and um, uh, sometimes we'll detox uh, in hospitals, sometimes, um, well, a lot of times we don't have beds. So we have to ask them to uh, to hang in there and just um, either keep using because it's going to make them sick to stop or uh, try and stay abstinent, abstinent uh, depending on the substance, and um, we'll get them on a wait list. So uh, it's it's never easy. It's got to be heartbreaking when someone comes to you and they're pleading for help and, it, and, it, and the help's not immediately available. Let me play a clip here for you, Christina, get your thoughts. Now, this is on last, last week's show. I spoke to Dr. Paxton Bach. He's an addictions doctor, St. Paul's Hospital, and I'm going to play this clip a, a little longer than we normally play it because what he has to say here I thought was so compelling about the state of the system that we have right now when people are coming to him for help and what kind of barriers they're facing for drug addiction treatment in BC. Let's have a listen to this and I'll get your thoughts. Dr. Paxton Bach here. Investment in our addiction treatment system is absolutely necessary, but it will still only be one part of a comprehensive response to, to this crisis um, because it, it does affect people um, of, of, of who, who use regularly, who is used intermittently. Uh, you know, it does touch such a broad uh, a broad group of, 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 of people. But speaking about our system itself, it's very clear that, that our system, um, as, it's, as it's currently operating, just does not have the capacity to handle the amount of, the amount of, of, of damage that we're seeing, the, the volume of patients that we're seeing. Um, you know, I work at St. Paul's Hospital in, in downtown Vancouver. I'm, I'm certainly on the forefront of, 
of of the crisis itself, but also probably the most resourced hospital in the province as far as our ability to deal with this. I see patients every day who are asking me if they can get into detox, and I'm putting them on a two or three or four week wait list to, to do that. I'm seeing patients every day who are asking me to go to an, a bed-based treatment program, uh, and I'm putting them on a three or four or five month wait list to do that. Um, so our, our treatment system is is simply not accessible right now in, in the in, in as timely a fashion as it needs to be. That is an eternity for somebody who's continuing to use drugs every day and put them and, and who's assuming just this enormous amount of risk every single time that they do. Have you, have you, are you aware of people who have died while waiting? Constantly. Constantly was his answer there. People who are dying while waiting for drug addiction treatment. Speaking to Christina Gower. Christina, what goes through your mind when you hear that? Uh, I 100% agree. Our system is uh, fragmented to a point where uh, the gaps in between basic stabilization and detox to um, long-term ongoing treatment uh, to address uh, trauma or uh, pain um, behind uh, the addiction, it's immeasurable. And and we just don't have uh, even the very basics of housing for people. Like, where can people even go? This, you know, addiction is, is a is a is a lack of connection to a community because a community supports and when you don't even have a safe appropriate place to lay your head at night where you feel okay i don't understand how people are going to stop the self-medication because that's what this is yeah. self-medication right and one of the things that occurred to me is i listen to these descriptions of our system right now i mean you have someone who, who is desperate they're asking for help and then they're told there's a weeks-long wait for a, a detox service and after that like, let's say someone gets stabilized now they're a prime candidate for a recovery facility and guess what they're told that you have to wait months and months and months to get continuing help like people relapse do they not start using again yeah, of course. And, yeah. and and then, you you know, when, when people are under the influence um, of a substance, you know, they're, they're, they lose time, uh, you know, they, they lose belongings, you know, phone numbers, they lose their, you know, cell phone um, and contacts and they fall through the cracks of the system and have to start all over again. And it happens repeatedly every single day. Yeah, I'll play another clip here for you because this, this one really surprised me here too last week. This is British Columbia's chief coroner, Lisa LaPointe at her news conference last year when she's announcing yet another shocking total of deaths from drug overdoses in our province. And here she is talking about our recovery system, our, our treatment system for people who are addicted to trying to get off drugs. Listen to her description of the system here, and then I'll get your thoughts. This is the chief coroner of BC. There is still no provincial uh, framework for regulation and reporting uh, on outcomes. So we don't actually know across the province where those beds are. We don't actually know what it means when a bed is funded. How many people does that help? What are the outcomes for those people? Okay, like I found that extraordinary last week that there's all this sort of knowledge gaps of here's the, the chief coroner for the province it is looking for basic information on treatment services in our province and they're, they're simply not there. Christina, your thoughts? Uh, this is, this is uh, to me... Um a very basic uh, area as well, where I feel like we can do so much better. Um, in, and I feel like it's not done 
on purpose. Like, I feel like yeah. this is a transparency issue. I feel just the same as our nursing crisis and our, our staffing crisis. Um, you know, I think that the, there should be publicly um, available uh, uh places to see what the resources are because then yeah. then maybe the public can have their priorities in order and understand how to pressure government um or or to how to vote and and what they need to hear from people that are, are elect uh, get running to, for election because uh these issues will affect every single family every single person your job site uh, your community and um and at some point it, you're going to have access to this system or be exposed to this system through either being a person that uh, requires help with mental health, a person that requires help with mental illness, um, or sorry, with uh, addiction, yeah. or a family member and loved one, or you're going to be a victim of a crime, and then you have your own trauma, you know, so it just, it, it's it's this snowball effect that has uh, has um, gone one direction where we deplete the resources, uh, we, we unhouse the people, we um, uh, take away, you know, things like physiotherapy for blue collar workers, and we make them pay for it instead of having it very accessible, or they can't miss work because they can't afford to pay their bills, you know, and then they get addicted to painkillers, that's over 60% of the population of opiate use. There's so many things that have um, contributed to this. And, and the very basic thing you can do is at least assess where you're at and see what you have to work with. And, and that's that's something that we're all blind to right now. We, we cannot see it uh, available. So um, I think that that would be a great start. Christina, thank you very much for your time and your thoughts today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Here we go now with the Chinese spy balloon saga. The U.S. military on Saturday shot down the balloon off the coast of Carolina on orders from U.S. President Joe Biden. Biden had said that he wanted the balloon shot down earlier in the week, but he was advised that the best time would be when the balloon was over water to avoid any risk to people on the ground. The balloon was shot down over the Atlantic Ocean. Recovery teams now trying to secure the wreckage of the balloon after it was shot down and its payload. It's not in super deep water. Debris in 47 feet of water primarily, according to officials, which will make the recovery easier. The balloon also floated earlier over Canadian airspace. Have a listen to Liberal MP Rob Oliphant here. He's the Foreign Affairs Parliamentary Secretary. Take a listen. We're monitoring it very closely. The, uh, the minister uh, insisted that the uh, Chinese ambassador be called in to explain the situation from their point of view. And we will continue to stand up for Canadians' rights all the time. Okay, should Canada have handled this any differently? Have a listen to Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader on this. It's outrageous. It's very concerning that uh, a hostile foreign government had a spy balloon in our airspace and then that continued to transit into the uh, northwestern United States. We as uh, Canadians should never tolerate uh, espionage uh, by foreign regimes, and we should work with our partners in the United States to hold the, re the regime in Beijing accountable. Okay, Canada says they're doing that by calling in the ambassador. The relations between the U.S. and China also strained over this incident. Let's discuss it now with my guest, David Creighton, national political columnist of the Western Standard. Very pleased to welcome him back. David, thanks a lot for coming on. No, oh, pleased to be here. Okay, David, let's let's talk about this incident now. Like The Chinese are saying, oh, the Americans overreacted. This is just a big misunderstanding. It's a mistake by a commercial a commercial aircraft. I don't understand that. What do you make of 
What, what are the Chinese up to here, and what do you make of what they're saying? Well, this is not a one-off by China. China compulsively spies on everybody, especially the United States. It's it's contaminated the 5G process. I mean, we have been warned repeatedly that China spies on us, and Canada especially has been hurt by China. Uh, if if we think about the incident in Toronto with the liberal and possibly two conservative MP candidates who were funded by China. We still haven't got to the bottom of that. China is a pariah country in so many ways, and it it uses economic espionage as well as military espionage. But I really find this this whole incident to be almost absurd because we uh, we allow this to float right across China, uh, right across Canada from Alaska into Montana where they refuse to shoot it down as well, uh, claiming that it, the debris might hurt school children. I don't, if you've been to Montana, uh, it's very hard to find schools within 100 miles of each other. It's a huge state with a very low population density. I find the reaction not only by Canada to be bizarre, but the United States allowed this to, to hover over Maelstrom Air Force Base in Montana, which is a nuclear-capable base, Tremendous amount of secrets there. High security. It went across the entire continental U.S. to South Carolina, where it was then shot down by a president who will not defend his southern border. Okay, well, the other thing, though, that jumps out at me, and I I find the whole saga somewhat bizarre as well, and it's been pointed out by officials in the U.S. that China already has spy satellites that can spy on other countries, so... How would they gain any kind of advantage from a spy spy balloon? Like, I guess the officials in the United States were saying this was not a major security threat or risk, and it, it's no more dangerous to them than, than China's existing spy satellites. What do you think of that? Well, I have to agree uh, with that uh, analysis, Mike, because this is basically U.S. Civil War technology. This is when they first started using balloons to... Yeah spy on the enemy and the reaction with an f-22 raptor to me just sounds incredible i I, they could have used a pop gun to get rid of this thing (laughs) but it but to me it's it's very symbolic of china just pushing its weight around and it loves to do this on the world scene to say go ahead shoot our balloon down and we're going to say that it's not really spying on you in the process but my concern, and you might find this a little unusual coming from, from, from the conservative uh, right, is that I think this could escalate completely unnecessarily because the reaction to Biden's reluctance and his usual tardiness in going after a military threat has infused those anti-Chinese elements, not only in the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party, to take action, to arm Taiwan. So Biden is waging a proxy war against Russia by arming Ukraine to the the teeth. And at the same time now, there's calls to punish China and to protect Taiwan by increasingly arming it. So we're looking at a potential two-front nuclear confrontation by a president well, who everybody thought was going to be uh, not endangering the, the world climate. 
Donald Trump went through four years without any hint of a nuclear war. We're looking at a potential nuclear confrontation now in the East and in Europe. And I'm very concerned that this incident is going to be used by the warmongering military-industrial establishment that continue the, the threat crisis, the threat level is insane well, right now. Absolutely well, insane. Well, don't you think, though, David, well, when you take a look at how the Republicans reacted to this, and, and of course, I think they saw an opportunity here to, to paint Biden as weak, that he did not act uh, quickly enough to neutralize this thing. But, you know, it's come out now that China sent balloons over the U.S., similar spy balloons over to the U.S. a few times when Trump was president, and then he didn't do anything about it either. Are you buying that? No, I'm not. No, I'm not buying that, because I, that seems to me to be the usual Biden rebuttal to just about everything that happens is that it's Trump's fault. And, and, and Biden, of course, is blaming his open border on Donald Trump, which is absolutely insane. And it, there's absolutely no indica- no correlation between Trump's policies and what's happening at the U.S. southern border right now. But no, I'm not I'm not buying that. But at, that's, at the same time, I'm not advocating saber rattling over yeah. this, because we are in a very fragile time historically. I compare it to August 1914, where, where, where alliances were pushing everybody into a confrontation in Europe that seemed inevitable. And it's never inevitable. World war is never inevitable. And we need to take stock of where we are and, and to lower the rhetoric, to lower the, the crisis uh, threat and level and and to look at this in a sane and rational way uh, china it loves to push it but the united states is in no position to militarily take on china right now and the experts are all agreeing on that this is this would be absolute insanity to push you- for a war with china Hey, David, what did you think about uh, cooperation here between canada and the united states as this balloon floated over both countries here, do you think that, what does that say about Canada's relations with America and, and say the NORAD defense system that we have in place right now? Like right now, um, Canada is saying there there is cooperation between the U.S. and Canada over this mm-hmm. incident. The, the Canada is saying the U.S. did the right thing shooting it down, uh, that Canada was kept informed of what was going on by the Americans. Is that a system in your mind that's working well, or does this show a need to update or modernize NORAD. Well, you you can have the the best system in place, and, and NORAD is still one of the best collective defense organizations on the world. But if nobody is following up on the intelligence and nobody is giving the orders, namely the commander in chief in this country, would have it would have been the governor general on the advice of Prime Minister Trudeau. But if nobody's following their advice, uh, intelligence is useless. If, if that's the case. But I go back to 9-11. Where, where on earth was NORAD on 9-11? It never satisfactorily answered that. And I'm certainly not one of these idiot conspiracy theorists. I, I believe what happened happened on 9-11. But where was NORAD? It was the intelligence being used. Was it being ignored? That, that day is still very much veiled in secrecy. But it's somebody who, who, who peddled the, the NORAD talking points for years as a public affairs officer. I was personally very disappointed in NORAD's uh, uh, perceived per- performance on that day. 
just as I, incre- I, I am from time to time. But I don't know if that's the organization's fault or if it's the political leadership's fault. And because of the security levels and the, and the classification levels surrounding these things, we really don't know unless you're intimately involved in the, in the situation. Hey, David, last question for you. When you look at Canada's reaction to the balloon when it was over in our airspace, do you think Canada act, reacted appropriately to this at the time? No, I think I think they should have shot it down. I mean, this this probably would have saved a lot of embarrassment for everybody. And I, I, and I say that meaning Canada has to consider what the ramification consequences are if the U.S. shoots it down. Uh, it would be easier for Canada to shoot it down and, and say, well, we perceive this to be an invasion of our airspace and apologize afterwards that there's tremendous uh, response from the Chinese. But there was, there was no need for this balloon to drift across the continental North America for four or five days before taking it down. It was clearly a violation of Canadian and American airspace. I think Canada should have acted first, not only in our interests, but in the best interests of the United States and the NORAD agreement. David, thank you for your time today and your analysis. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mike. Okay, let's keep talking about the Chinese spy balloon now shot down by the U.S. military on Saturday. U.S. recovery teams now trying to recover the remains of the balloon and its payload, the debris. The good news here is the debris is in about 47 feet of water, primarily here in the Atlantic Ocean. They were planning for much deeper deeper water, so maybe they got lucky here on the ability to recover this debris. What could they learn when they do. Let's keep discussing it now with my guest, David Tice. David is the producer of the documentary film Grid Down, Power Up, which focuses on security threats to the American power grid from cyber attacks and other threats. David, thanks a lot for coming on. Glad to be with you, Mike, and your listeners. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. What do you make of this whole incident here? What do you think China is up to here? Well, I... I really think this might have been a test run to see if they can keep this balloon over the United States, what our reaction would be, if it would be discovered, etc. We know that in my film, we talk about four threats. One of those is EMP or an electromagnetic pulse attack. And we even talk about the fact that it could be launched from a weather balloon. And because we blew up the payload, I don't think it had a nuke on board, or we might have had an EMP over the ocean. But I, so I don't think. So I think this was a test run. A, a test run. Okay, so they're like testing America's response to it. Yes, that's yeah. what I believe. Yeah, yeah. What do you think they could find out if they if they recover the payload here? Like when you take a look at some of the images of this balloon, looks like there was like. It almost looks like a satellite array was attached to it there. If they are able to recover this hardware there, what do you think they could potentially find out? I tell you, Michael, that's outside my bandwidth. I have no real idea. So, But I'd say the American people and your listeners need just to see our film and understand that threat level is picking up like we can't believe. You think about what's happened in the last 
month and a half with the airlines, where Southwest Airlines was essentially knocked out for five days. Then we had the FAA knocked out for a few hours. Then we had LAX knocked out for a while. I mean, it looks like there's there's a, a great deal of events happening. Maybe those are all coincidences or maybe we're being tested. Okay. Do you think that uh, America or the United States are are prepared for something like this? And what did you think of the response? Do you think they should have shot this thing down quicker? It's really difficult to say, not knowing, you know, the intelligence. It, it seems that's kind of Monday morning quarterbacking. Like I said, potentially, if, if there was a nuclear device on board, I, I'm not sure if you would have wanted to shoot it down you know when it was over montana so and and our military guys you know were the ones making that decision david thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it sure uh have your listeners check out griddownpowerup.com All right, welcome back. Let's talk about private health care now in BC and elsewhere across Canada. Take a look what's happening in Ontario. The Doug Ford government there announcing an expansion of surgeries and other procedures in private clinics, starting with MRIs and CT scans and expanding to hip and knee replacements. Now, the government says they're not breaking any rules here, but people sounding the alarm on it as well. Have a listen to the Ontario Premier. Here's Doug Ford making that announcement. To start, we're tackling the backlog of cataract surgeries, where we have some of the longest waits. All of these services, they'll be available using your OHIP card, never your credit card. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Brian Day, owner of the Canby Surgery Center. Very pleased to welcome Dr. Day back to the show. Thank you very much for coming on today. You're welcome. Dr. Day, what do you think about what they're doing in Ontario? Like one of the things that Doug Ford has emphasized here over the past week is that patients in Ontario, they will not be faced with any kind of user fees or extra billing, that it's all covered under Medicare in Ontario. Is this the right thing to do, use private clinics? Well, he's catching up with what the BCNDP government started 30, uh, 25, over 25 years ago. And, uh, you know, he's getting a lot of flack for doing what um, was introduced in the 90s in British Columbia and is going on at a high scale uh, today. So it, it's, it's just interesting. And, you know, you have Jagmeet Singh attacking him. Well, and Jagmeet Singh is from, you know, he represents Burnaby in, in, in BC. And, and uh, we've been doing it for many years. So... Yes, it's a good start, but, um, but you know, a poll came out today from yeah. Ipsos saying that um, a significant majority of Canadians, 85% think the system is, is in a disaster state, which it is, and over 60, about 60% across the country, in some provinces like Quebec, it's 75%, um, believes you should be able to access private insurance too. Because that's what you can do in every other country on the planet, including countries like Sweden and Denmark and Belgium and New Zealand and so on. So, so it's a it's a start, but um, it's getting over this bogeyman idea that we the only alternative for us is the U.S. system, whereas there are many systems throughout the world that outperform us, cost less, and and don't have the massive wait lists that Canada has. 
Okay, speaking of Jagmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader, yeah, you're right. He's concerned about this trend in Ontario of more use of private clinics. He stood up in the House of Commons and challenged Justin Trudeau on it the other day, uh, saying that maybe the, the federal government should step in here. Let's have a listen to this exchange, then I'll get your thoughts. So this is Jagmeet Singh here versus Justin Trudeau. Have a listen to this. In the last election, the Prime Minister made a really big deal of calling out the Conservatives for proposing the idea of bringing in more for-profit private health care. But now when Doug Ford is doing exactly that, mm-hmm. he's calling it innovation. Uh, moving forward on backlogs, supporting Canadians who need uh, emergency care, uh, we will ensure that the Canada Health Act is fully respected. Okay, so the Canada Health Act there, you heard Trudeau saying you'll make sure that no rules are being broken here. Ontario's not breaking any rules by expanding options in private clinics, are they? Not at, not at all. And, and, you know, it's ironic. You know, 30 years ago, I wrote an article called The Hypocritical Oath. And, and the point is, uh, the point then, and I, I almost should update it and write it again, that these politicians are all, you know, use the private sector themselves. He, you know, Jagmeet Singh, went to one of the most expensive private schools in North America. And, uh, you know, does anyone suggest that, that those that independent schools and private schools across Canada should be closed down? It, it's a ludicrous situation when, when, when we are faced. What, what Ford will do, is doing by this is saving lives. Now, that may be, sound strange, but for every hospital admission in Canada, public hospital admission, there is one, one in a hundred preventable deaths occur. They're preventable deaths, not deaths that are expected or terminally ill patients. One in a hundred preventable deaths occur. And the college of, uh, in, at, at our clinic in Canby, we've treated over 80,000 patients now since we opened. There's never been a death. So um, Ford's action will save lives and also reduce complications. College, the College of Physicians of BC collects data on complications in, in, in private clinics, and the government collects data on complications in public hospitals. There are almost 40 times more complications, such as infections and uh, you know, superbug infections, serious life-threatening infections in, in public hospitals than in private clinics. So this is actually a safety thing that will protect the public. And um, so this is just mm. politics getting in the way of, 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 of um, logic. Speaking of Dr. Brian Day about Ontario expanding the use of private clinics, uh, we've talked a lot about this issue on the show. We've talked about people who have decided to say, the heck with the waiting list here in British Columbia. I'm going to go to Mexico or elsewhere to get my surgery done. We always get into this debate over private versus public health care in our province and in our country. So have a listen to Dr. Bernard Ho here from Canadian Doctors for Medicare. This is on an earlier show. Uh, making the argument for, no, we don't want private insurance options. It should be all public. Here's what he has to say, then I'll get your thoughts. Dr. Ho. Public solutions are the way to reduce wait times for everyone, to allow everyone to have faster access to the care that they need. Because at the end of the day, the bottom line should be that people should be able to access health care based on need and not their ability to pay. What do you think of that argument, Dr. Day, that if you go to a, a blended hybrid public-private system where you're allowed to purchase private health insurance if you want, that you're effectively buying your way to the front of the line? Well, it's the exact opposite. I mean, we're talking theory versus practice, and we know from countries like Germany and Switzerland 
that um, that that doesn't happen in New, New Zealand. In, in Australia, eight million Australians have, uh, with family incomes below fifty thousand a year, have private insurance subsidised by the government um, or sometimes fully funded by the government. So the answer is is to, uh, uh, as I say, name me a monopoly that serves the consumer well. There is not a single monopoly on this earth that serves the consumer of the service well. And in Canada, we are unique in having a government monopoly on the delivery of hospital and physician services. A little bit of competition makes you more accountable. There's no accountability. And, um, and of course, as, as you've um, kind of alluded to, the, the, um, the, there is nothing in the Canada Health Act. Uh, yeah. every, pretty well every family doctor in Canada it's a private for-profit clinic if you, you know, it's just that it, sure. it's a dirty, profit seems to be a dirty word. But, you know, evidence at our trial um, showed that for every $5,000 of revenue, our clinic gets, makes $65. And um, that is staying in the black because if we don't stay in the black, we go bankrupt. These clinics were not set up to make a profit. They were set up to give rack doctors whose OR time in the public system is rationed access to operating time. And 23 of Canby's 76 visiting specialists who've all used up their public OR time uh, would not be in Canada if it were not for the extra OR time that we offer. Wow. Speaking of Dr. Brian Day, founder of the Canby Surgery Center. Okay. You mentioned Australia as one example of other countries that have this sort of hybrid system. Let me play another clip here for you from Dr. Bernard Ho, Canadian Doctors for Medicare. He cites the specific example of Australia here and wait times there. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. In Australia, for example, when they introduced private duplicative insurance, uh, they didn't, with the goal of reducing wait times, they actually saw that the wait times in the public sector didn't improve. And in areas where private health care was most used, wait times in the public system went up. Is that true? Absolutely not. So what he thought, first of all, it's just empirically, private health care was never introduced into Australia, nor into every other country. Private health care was the first health care in every country. It's public health care that was introduced secondarily, uh, starting, you know, maybe 60, 70 years ago or more. But, but, um, but what he's alluding to, and this is kind of comical, is in Australia, the data shows that it's more common to get for, for obtain private insurance where the wait lists are long. And groups like his have interpreted that to mean that, um, that the, the long wait lists cause private insurance, you know, were caused by private insurance. No, no, no. That's like saying if you live in Vancouver and, and have an umbrella, you're, you're, you're 20 times more likely to have an umbrella in Vancouver than you are in Palm Springs. Therefore, umbrellas cause it to rain. It's the most ludicrous, one of the most ludicrous statements I've ever heard. All right. Talking private health care with my guest, Dr. Brian Day, Canby Surgery Center. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Sandy in Langley. Hi, Sandy. Go ahead. Hello. Um, I would absolutely go private for health care if I needed outside of the country. I'm 70 maybe a life expectancy of 10 years. Do I want to spend 20% of that suffering needlessly? No. 
Thank you for that. You know, Brian, when you take a look at people who have made the decision to go out of the country, is that a, a growing trend here? If you're, if people are sick of waiting, go somewhere else? Yes, and, and it's unfortunate, like, because it should be, they should be able to get it right here at home. And, um, and you know, the, the one of the classic groups that go out of the country, of course, are, are elected politicians and and personalities, they, they don't hang around. Uh, you know, one of the paradoxes of our constitutional trial, which we lost at the BC Court, uh, the BC Court but we're trying to um, take that to the Supreme Court of Canada, is that a judge is sitting there deciding whether, uh, whether, you, whether ordinary Canadians should have the same rights they have because they are federal employees and are allowed to get access to private health care. The judge in our trial had had surgery at a private clinic. We have received reimbursement from the federal government for judges treated at our clinic, and yet they are in a position to deny that right to, to others. And, and it just leads into the fact that the wealthy, in, and there is no country in the world where the wealthy suffer. The wealthy go abroad. It's the middle yeah. income and lower incomes that, that are groups that need to be addressed. And Stats Canada says that Canada... It has the worst health the worst health outcomes and the worst access in Canada is in lower socioeconomic groups. So the system is broken. We need to let's go to it. let's go to Glenn on the line in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Glenn. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. How are you? I got a, I have a 17 year old at home uh, that ha- had a serious knee injury a year ago this coming March. Misdiagnosed, mismanaged. The story is uh, long, but we. Uh, I still don't even have a date for surgery. I looked into going to Alberta. It's $30,000. I never even thought to think about Mexico. But, you know, there's something, there's got to be something better close to home. I mean, here's a 17-year-old who's lost a year of his sports, and then he's got a year of recovery. I mean, what does that do to his youth? You know, it's quality of life. is uh, it's changed. Wow. You know what, I mean? what kind of surgery does he need? He needs... Uh, uh, an ACL replacement and meniscus uh, t- uh, torn and uh, yeah, meniscus and ACL all in the same knee. Thank he's you for active, that. He's an, he's an active kid, right? He's, he, you know, he yeah. likes to ride dirt bikes, play lacrosse, cycling. You know, it, it's been a big impact and we're talking now something that could have been managed within a couple of months. We're now right. going to be looking at two years of impact on a 17-year-old, right? There's, there's, there's big development and mental challenges, all of those sorts of things. It's, it's big deal dr day what do you think of that well it's terrible and um, and that 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 kid should be treated within days of the injury we you know one of the things that we haven't talked about but even within the public system another unique thing about canada is we block fund our hospitals so they get a lump sum of payment at the beginning of the financial year therefore every patient going to a hospital in canada whether it's the er or a hospital for surgery is using up the hospital's revenue and money. Therefore, there's no incentive in Canada. We're the only developed country, in the o- only country in the OECD that block funds its hospitals exclusively so that patients are the last thing the chief financial officer wants. We've got to change that within the public system. And we have to have a care guarantee. That 17-year-old should wait no more than weeks. And in, mm. oh, in, the 90, in the 80s in Canada, in the 70s and the 80s, they were treated as soon as they were injured. 
as let's, soon as they were injured, and that should be the case today. Let's go to Steve calling from the West End. Steve, you got about 30 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. Mike, I was in South Korea, very advanced country. I tore up my meniscus. Um, I got an MRI that same day. I've got the disc. Uh, they wanted to. They offered surgery on the spot for me, but because I was in a foreign country, I said, "Hey, I'm going to hold off." Came back home, showed them my my GP, uh, my MRI disc, and he said, "Look, sorry, I'll just have to put you into the system." Still waiting. Uh, it's been several oh. months, and I don't even know. I have the MRI, Mike. I, I and I don't even know when my appointment's going to be. How can more choices in a freer society be a bad thing. We're, how much did you did you pay for the MRI in, in Korea? I how much did I pay? I, yeah. I paid with my credit card, but I was reimbursed with my my travel insurance. How much was 100%. it? Five hundred thirty dollars. Oh, okay, five. Okay, Doctor Day. We only got twenty seconds here. Go ahead. Well, that, that's what most Canadians want. We live in a democracy. When the polls the poll today says sixty percent of Canadians want this. What are the politicians waiting okay. for? Thank you for your time today. Hey, Vancouver. I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd leave you and move to Edmonton. But I had this great job opportunity. So I came here in 2019. And so far, I've been pleasantly surprised. The people here are friendly and helpful. The food scene is amazing. There's plenty of stuff to do. And I bought my first house for just over 400000 which is kind of like a cherry on top. Alberta is calling. Learn more at albertaiscalling.ca. A message from the government of Alberta. Okay, do you remember those ads? Boy, those were playing a lot just a few months ago. I wonder if they worked. Well, you take a look at some of the statistics that have come out from StatsCan here now on how many people have moved from British Columbia to Alberta. Highest number in 20 years, 28,000 last year. 28,000 people migrated from B.C. to Alberta. Highest total in two decades. It was going the other direction before that. There were more people coming the other way. People were moving from Alberta to B.C. That's one of the reasons they started that ad campaign. Why are people moving? Well, take a look at the cost of living, especially in the city of Vancouver, the most expensive city in the country, especially for housing. You heard in that ad, the guy says, oh, I could get a house for 400000 in Edmonton. Try 350000 Taking a look at a, a website here, a realty website in Edmonton right now, yeah, hundreds of houses for sale, 350000 bucks. For a detached home you gotta you gotta live in alberta though that's the other side of it people love british columbia would you be willing to do it would you move from bc to alberta to save money okay let's discuss it now my guest is deborah call deborah moved from bc to alberta and i'm very pleased to welcome her deborah thanks very much for coming on today no problem okay deborah we're I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Where did you live in, in B.C. before you moved? Beautiful Victoria. Oh, Victoria. Okay. Well, I live in Victoria, too. So beautiful city. <laughs> when did you move to Alberta? Um, the decision was made in mid-spring of 2021. Um, and we arrived in our home here on June 5th of 2021. 
Okay, why did you decide to make the move? There was a lot of options. It was a consideration that my youngest child, who is an adult, wanted to, you know, we wanted to leave the island. We couldn't afford to live there. We were in a beautiful, large two-bedroom basement suite with gorgeous views of the city. Uh, We were there for just over 10 years, I think. But the landlord's adult children tried to move out on their own, and they couldn't find anywhere that they could afford to live. So, sadly, they, you know, asked us to move so that their kids could live downstairs and go to college and whatnot. Um, So we kind of knew it was coming, and we already had started looking around. And there was just nothing, Mm. nothing I could afford in Victoria. I was looking at, because I work from home, so I was looking at a two-bedroom and den, maybe 800 square feet for $2,500. That was a tiny little apartment. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of just made that decision. Okay, you know what? We can't afford to live here. Let's go. So we are in a beautiful 1,400 square foot, not including probably another 800 square foot basement, and we are paying 450 And that is in Edmonton, right? And, yeah, right in Edmonton. I'm right by, you know, a couple of the train stations, transit stations. I'm in sort of southwest Edmonton. And and how much how much did you say the rent was? Fourteen fifty for a three bedroom and fully finished basement. Fourteen fifty. Yeah. Wow. Compared to twenty five hundred, you're looking at. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at what we have here, um, as you probably saw in the article previous to this. It's this place here probably would go for over four thousand. Whoa. Easy. Yeah. In Victoria alone, Vancouver, I don't even want to imagine. Wow. Okay. What has the transition been like moving from BC to Alberta? It's hard. You know, I did have one child move with me, but my brother is there, all my friends, my oldest son. Um, So yeah, it was a difficult move leaving everyone behind, but I felt happy about it. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a bit of misled information on the cost of living here, yes, housing is cheaper, yeah. but utilities are not. Oh, no. Okay. So how much? Here, how much higher? How much higher are the utilities you're paying? Well, for any basements or any rental that you have in Victoria, you usually don't pay for water. You usually don't pay for sewer. You usually don't pay for garbage. Right. So we're paying all that as well as the electricity, the gas, which is for your heat. Um, and then your hot water. So I was looking anywhere between probably 300 to 450 a month, depending on the time of year. Okay. And uh, BC yeah, hydro. Boy. Yeah. yeah. Like when I, my utilities with BC hydro, it was every two months. And even in the coldest times of the winter, never reached $300. Right. Two months. So yeah, it was definitely a bit misleading. Yeah. Okay. So you got you, you got a little blindsided on some of those costs there. I, I guess for yeah. for heating your home there. I mean, what's the weather like? I mean, boy, is what's, what's how cold is it there right now today? About five degrees. Yesterday oh, okay. It was seven. It's an <laughs> ab. From what I understand, it's a very abnormal weather pattern right now. Yeah. But yeah. So let's go to last year. Yeah. On we had you know that minus fifty cold. Oh. 
Yeah, it, that was where the max of 450 came in. But I'm one of those people. You got blankets, use them. Just have it <laughs> warm enough so things don't, your pipes don't freeze. And sweaters, socks, blankets, whatever. That's just the way I am. So, I mean, if you're a heat hog, yeah. you're, you probably would have gone way, way up yeah. over the 450 a month. Yeah. Well, that's the reality yeah. you're facing there. Do you regret the move in any way? Um, no. The only thing I regret is leaving my friends and family. I wish they could have all come with me. Yeah. Because, to be honest, I love the winters here. I love the summers. The snow. First time I shoveled the snow, I fell flat on my face. Oh, no. Because it was so light and fluffy, opposed to the wet grossness from Victoria. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was a good joke. It was very, very funny. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, no regrets whatsoever. I do have a long lost found sister now who lives in Lloydminster, Alberta. So that was... That's a bonus for living here as well. Would you say that at the end of the day, like this was a, an economic decision that was forced on you for you and your family, something you didn't want to do, but you felt you had to do it? Would that be fair to say? Well, we were we were planning on wanting to come here eventually. COVID okay. hit, so we put those plans way on the back burner. Mm-hmm. But being forced out of my, my home, and I understand. I'm not blaming my landlords. I understand. But, yeah, we couldn't just, we just pretty much had to pack up everything and go. And, you know, finding housing over FaceTime or Zoom was very difficult. Mm. Because, you know, you're not sure what you're going to get when you arrive. But we were pleasantly very happy. Still no regrets whatsoever. Um, All right. Yeah. And, you know, one other thing I wanted to make note of is the doctor situation. Mm. Doctors here are starting to fill up, but almost any clinic are still accepting new patients. So you you have a family doctor now, do you? Yes, I do. I went probably 15 years without one. Wow. Okay, so you got a family doctor. I have a lot of health conditions, yeah. Okay, well, that's very important. Yeah, Uh, oh, it is. Deborah, I want to thank you very much for coming on and sharing your story today. I'm glad your your move worked out, and thank you for talking about it. Yes, well, have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.